A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And before we get into tonight's episode, which we're going to talk a little bit about two fascinating siblings, uh, Yeshayahu and Nechama Leibowitz, um, just get first to um, some feedback, some letters that we got. I haven't done that in a while. So first I want to start with some um, feedback I got from our Washington Heights episode recently. I was privileged to hear from one of the current leading members of the community and a grandchild of our Breuer, Mr. Samson Bechoffer, who was very gracious and kind in correcting me on several uh, um, points from that episode. Um, number one, he said that... Uh, Rib Shimon Schwab, when I stated that he was that he initiated a halacha shir in Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, he said he was simply uh, continuing Rav Breuer, who gave a uh, halacha shir every day to the community, and he actually gave a twelve shiurim a week on a range of subjects on Gemara and halacha and Navi and all kinds of other things. He was very active in giving shiurim, um, and in addition, the he said although Rav Naftali Friedler was very beloved by the community but he was never considered to become the rabbi or the successor of Rav Breuer. And for sure, Rav Breuer would never have cut uh, the hair by a three-year-old's upshir, and that, that is simply inconceivable. Um, Rav Naftali Friedler's Shabbos afternoon shear was for the entire community, any of the Balabatim. It was not limited to parents of the students in the yeshiva. And last but not least, the Grashul and Bayit Vigan was not a Yaki Shul, and there is no comparison of the Grashul and Bayit Vigan to KJ in Washington Heights. There were several other corrections there, but we'll suffice with that. So thank you for those clarifications. Another listener, again, about the Washington Heights episode, mentioned that his favorite part of the story of Washington Heights was that I mentioned Manny Ramirez. I guess the Jewish part of the story was a little more boring. So I'm happy that I mentioned Manny Ramirez. And then and then in that same email, he went on the whole thing about Manny Ramirez and his growing up in the Heights, which we'll save for another time. 
Then I got this letter also, and this I'll quote, I'll read exactly as it's written because it's a funny story, also about the Washington Heights episode, and here it goes. My grandfather was raised in Frankfurt in the Hirsch community and told me the following story that used to circulate. One time, two Jews from Frankfurt found themselves together for Shabbos in a different non-Jewish town in Germany. One was from the separatist community and the other from the regular community. Come Shabbos and the Jew from the Hirsch community sees the Jew from the other community carrying on Shabbos. So the Hirschian Jew says to the other Jew, how can you carry on Shabbos? There's no Erev here. To which the other responds, it's okay, I'm part of the other community, we carry on Shabbos. End of letter, I thought that was very funny. And moving on to the more recent Pittsburgh episode, I made... I broke one of my own rules, I'll be honest, it was my fault, and I try to stick only to history, preferably history that no one's alive to remember, um, and and I accidentally mentioned something contemporary, and of course I got in trouble for it. Lesson learned is to stay away from anything contemporary, leave that for the op-ed writers, and uh, stick to history. So here, here's, what I, here's the letter I got. Um, I'll quote, I really took offense to the way you backhandedly mentioned that the Kamenetz Yeshiva has seen better days. Uh, today there's over 200 Bacharim and Yungalite in the Yeshiva Gedailah, that's besides the Masifta and the Cheder, which is probably another, an additional thousand Talmidim. In my humble opinion, it's a very Chashvi Yeshiva with tremendous Talmidim Chachamim. End of, uh, of that part of the letter. Um, Okay, yeah, no, I, I did definitely did not mean to put down the yeshiva whatsoever. It was not my intention. I'm very much aware that it has a lot of students in the yeshiva today, and and uh, you know, I I um, I, I hope I hope no one took offense or takes offense. I definitely shouldn't have made any statement on on the yeshiva today. I meant that, of course, in uh, in prestige, it had seen uh, better days back in the day. Not in any way putting it down today. I hope that's uh, that's clear. It was on the Pittsburgh one on the topic of Rebitzlik Shiner, which was the context of Kamenetz over there. So there was a slip of tongue there. I mentioned that Rabbi Bender was a Meshulach of 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 YU of Rabbi Yisrael Chana, and then I mentioned that he sent Rebitzlik Shiner to Tarvadas. It's obviously a mistake. He was a Meshulach of YU. He sent him to YU, and the reason. Uh, Tarvadas slipped in by accident was because at a later point, a couple of years later, Ritzik Shiner switched from uh, YU to Tarvadas, and there he was a Talmud of the people that I mentioned on the episode. But of course, um, Ray Bender sent him to YU. Um, one last correction from an old, old episode, but the, the a family member of, uh, of Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky insisted that I make this correction, so so I'll just go on record to make that. And the, uh, a few months ago, we had an episode of stories about Rebecca Kamenetsky. It was around his yard site time. And I said a story about when he was a rabbi in Toronto, and there was a rumor that Mashiach was coming. So the way I said the story was that he announced in shul that, um, that, uh, that, that Mashiach's not coming, and people can keep their stores open on Shabbos or he sent out a message to the community, meaning it was in a public forum. 
Apparently it was not public, it was not in shul, he didn't send out a message to the community. There was a person, a single individual, who came to Rabbi Yaakov's house and asked him what to do, should I close my store or not? And Rabbi Yaakov told that individual to keep his store open and because Mashiach's not coming next week. And that, that, you know, that qualifies uh, the story. So I appreciate that correction as well. So now we can finally move along over to tonight's topic. A very fascinating story of, of two siblings, the Leibowitzes and Chama Leibowitz and Shayao Leibowitz, who are not only different from the entire world, they're just anomalies to a certain extent, but, um, but they're also so different from each other. So we'll talk a little bit about them uh, first, Nechama, and then hopefully we'll get to her older brother also. Um, they grow up in Riga, in Latvia, which was in Latvia then. It was part of the Russian Empire, the Tsarist Russian Empire in the early 1900s. And they grow up in a very interesting home. Their father was a wealthy lumber dealer. So they grew up in a wealthy home, a, a religious home. But he was their their parents were a bit enlightened intellectuals Zionistic. Um, her parent, her father spoke to them in Hebrew and taught them Tanakh, which became her trademark, both Hebrew and Tanakh. And her father was her primary teacher for many years for during her formative years. You know, in the in the aftermath of World War One and the disintegration of the Russian Empire and the subsequent revolution. Um, so until the Republic of Latvia was uh, declared in the wake of World War I and Woodrow Wilson's insistence um, that, uh, that you know, the nations of, of Europe, um, many in Eastern Europe and in the Balkans and Southern Europe, they should proclaim independence and every ethnic uh, um, grouping should should become a nation state, a republic. So until that happened in Latvia, so the upheavals and destruction of his business made him and many other Jews at the time as well move west, and they moved to Berlin. So when she's a teenager, they settle down in um, in Berlin, and they go to university there, and she goes to several universities. Humboldt University in Berlin and in Marburg and a couple other places, and they both get doctorates. Her doctorate was about Bible translation in the 16th century, which uh, sounds like a fascinating topic, and um, and and her brother we'll get to soon. Either way, so she already as a young uh, student, she starts to teach in different Berlin schools. One of the places she taught was actually Tanakh. Ready, ready from the beginning by Rabbi Israel Hildesheimer by one of her one of his schools. She was a teacher ready in her low twenties. Tw- uh, she herself was not only studying at university; she was studying at the Institute for Jewish Studies, where she studied under uh, the famous Rabbi Dr. Leo Beck. Um, and in nineteen thirty, three significant events happen in Nechama Leibowitz's life. Uh, number one, she got her doctorate. Number two, she marries her uncle, her father's brother, Yedidya Lipman Leibowitz. So she keeps the name Leibowitz. It's her maiden name and her married name. And interestingly enough, her uncle is almost 30 years older than her. So an interesting uh, marriage, which didn't produce any children. She later on, when she was an incredibly accomplished woman who had written much and a professor and taught everyone and thousands of students and admirers, 
She said later on in life that she would give up everything she had to have children. You know, she never had uh, that um, opportunity. And um, she, the third significant event that happens that that year, 1930s, she moves to Israel. It was 1930s. Before Hitler comes to power, she didn't move there because she was escaping from the Nazis, which is what happened to her brother a few years later. But she uh, comes to live in Israel, and she once she moved there, she said she's never leaving. And despite the fact that she was offered many times to lecture in many places around the world, and they would fly her in and pay her a lot of money, she said, I'm never leaving Israel, and she never left Eretz Israel till the day she died, which was over 60 years later. Um, and she settles down in Kiryat Moshe in Yerushalayim. She teaches at the local Mizrahi uh, seminary, teacher seminary for the next quarter of a century, the next 25 years. And then she moves up into academia. Before that, she already starts what became, again, her trademark. In 1942, she starts um, writing up questions. And, uh, and she, she called them called stencils. She called them gilionot or dapim pages, literally. Very simple. She was known for her simplicity in many aspects and many facets of her personality. And she starts sending them out to anyone who requests them. And there were questions on the weekly Parsha, and people would send back their answers, and then she would analyze them with different pirush and with different commentaries, and that formed eventually the basis of what would become her sfarim of iyunim into the Parsha, or uh, the, on the on the on the, on the but she gave it, that was on the weekly Parsha, but she, when she taught, she was teaching on, on all of Tanakh. But in any event, she... Um, she her first academic position is in Barilan, uh, so she becomes a teacher there. But she leaves in protest a few years later. Uh, one of the people she admired and was close with was uh, Rabbi Dr. Mayer Weiss, who was also an interesting personality. Mayer Weiss was Hungarian. He grew up in Budapest, a from guy, religious. He got smicha, he got a doctorate, and he became a rav in Debrecen. So he. You can call him the Debrecen Rav if you want, but you know there's other people who have that title, and he's the Rav in Debrecen when the Nazis invade Hungary. And he, how does he get saved? He's one of the other famous personalities who get onto the Kastner train, which is also a topic for another time, which we also discussed and have discussed in the past. So he and his family get out on the Kastner train, and he comes to Eretz Yisrael, and he's also a researcher and everything, and also Tanakh-related subjects, and. Uh, and he gets a position in Bar-Ilan University, and he had a fallout with Dr. Kurzweil, the, the, I forget his exact position, is one of the heads or the head of, of Bar-Ilan at the time, and he's fired. And she does not like the fact that, she's, that he's fired, and she resigns in protest. And who hires her? Tel Aviv University. So she switches over to Tel Aviv, and she, um, she remains there till she retired, but she's really speaking and lecturing everywhere. She um she uh spoke literally in any place that 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 she could get the opportunity to speak she didn't wait for people to invite her she looked to speak in different organizations and schools to young and to old to religious to secular to kibbutzim and to cities literally in every institutional framework or even a haimisha framework that she could teach tanakh and inspire people to study tanakh and that was her life literally to rev- to not, not to revolutionize cuz she would, always insisted that she wasn't revolutionary, 
but to, to, to promulgate the study of Tanakh. And she went on to Kol Yisrael. She had a radio program to, on the Parsha that she gave on the Parsha every week and on Tanakh. And she, like I said, the writings of her letters, which eventually reached thousands of people that she was sending out these letters, these questions to every week and uh, on the Parsha. And also the, the places that she would lecture, a whole wide range of diverse places from every age and every background and any affiliation or non-affiliation, it didn't matter to her. She insisted that all teaching is in Hebrew, even though she was uh, fluent in several languages, in Russian and German, others, but she had a love for the Hebrew language that was one of her pet peeves and insisted that the answers that she received from her students were in perfect Hebrew, that was something she was quite firm and strict about, even though she, when, what made her so beloved to people was that she was very warm, what made her such so, so a great teacher, and that's how she always saw herself as a teacher, was her warmth and her sense of humor, and she was funny, she was engaging, but on the other hand, she was very insistent on the Hebrew language and on that, and on the serious study of the Tanakh. Now, in her travels, she had a very sim- simplicity to her both in her own home, and people were sometimes shocked by how sparsely furnished her home was, and she was also very generous. Uh, there was a story that a, a, someone was there in her home when a, a poor man came knocking on the door asking for a donation, and she noticed that the man, uh, or the woman actually, it was a woman collecting, and uh, she, her, her clothing was very frayed and tattered. So she simply took out a new... Um, set of clothing, a new dress or whatever it was that she had just bought and it was brand new. She hadn't really worn it yet and she gave it to the, this poor woman. And the, someone asked her there, you just bought that for yourself. Why couldn't you give the poor person something else? And she said, I should give them my tattered clothing? I'll give, I'll give her my new clothing. That's what they deserve. She had a, a real, real simplicity, a real uh, gutzkeit, a real givingness, uh, good-hearted, and she loved the simple people. And she would get around the country to all her lectures. She would take a bus, public transportation, or a taxi. She loved uh, talking and engaging in conversation with taxi drivers, and anyone who's been to Israel knows that engaging conversation with taxi drivers is sometimes challenging, sometimes it's funny, sometimes, but it's always a story, and they're always a personality. And she would incorporate those stories into her classes. And uh, her students would have a whole long list of stories that she had with taxi drivers because she found people fascinating and she would always want to share the, the wisdom of life that uh, she had in, these, uh, in the conversations with what's so-called known, not known as so-called simple people. And um, so she, um, one of the interesting things about her is that though she definitely empowered women, and the idea that she was a scholar with a doctorate who had a full professorship at Tel Aviv University and was learning, and she was studying Tanakh and teaching Tanakh, and her students were both male and female. There were many, there were many rabbis who studied by her and were her students. So in a certain way, she empowered women. On the other hand, what's surprising to find out is that she was anti-feminist in, in, in the modern form. And she spoke out against it. And when certain feminists would try to bring her over to the cause, she, she uh, knocked it down. She was not interested. And she was very traditional in many ways, very conservative in many ways. And she said, uh, you know, your job is to listen to God and follow the mitzvahs. And don't try to look for ever, any other mitzvahs. And, and she would 
uh, encounter uh, orthodox feminist ideals about trying to you know have them uh, take on myths that were normally reserved for men in the traditional uh, orthodox world she would say that's it's that superficial and that that uh, that comes from uh, secular feminism and i'm not interested i said you want to don't stifle your intellectual curiosity. You want to study, study Tana. And everything about her, her methodology was about, um, was about, uh, was about delving into the sources and based on Midrashim, she would even quote Gemaras and the commentaries and the Pirushim. But, uh, but, um, so that is that, that she was all into. But as far as keeping the mitzvah, she was very traditional and, uh, and wasn't into the whole, um, the whole the whole ideal that was becoming more popular as time went on um an interesting um an interesting aspect of the way she taught she the way the way she taught was a very literary approach very into the text itself she was inspired by scholars she had been exposed to in germany people like martin buber and franz rosenzweig and others in Israel, uh, Umberto Casuto, who actually I mentioned in a as a scholar of Tanakh, I mentioned him in the context of the Aleppo Codex episode, and then I, I you know, I mentioned I, in passing about his mustache, and I said that it was one of the greatest mustaches of all time, and this is one of the many reasons I love the Jewish History Soundbites listeners and the feedback I get from them is that. Someone writes to me, said, you mentioned that it's one of the best. I would vote to say that Kaiser Wilhelm II of Germany probably had the best one, and I don't think Casuto's mustache beats him. So that's also an important fact to clarify. But in any event, so what she takes the Tanakh, she was taking a traditionalist approach. She's anti the whole Bible criticism field, the whole scientific field. She says there's no reason to look at the historical context of where the Bible, the Tanakh, is written, the geographical context, the archaeological record. None of that interests me. We have what it says, what it, what it says there in the text, a very literary approach that was becoming more popular that she took to a new level. And let's look at it there, and let's see what the commentators, what the Pirushim say, and let's try to analyze. Now, she's very open to all types of commentators, every type, even, even not necessarily the religious ones, or more, you know, not mainstream commentaries. Um, you know, the main ones, she went with the regular commentaries. But what, a line that became her trademark, which sounds like she was almost like a Rosh Hashiva, she said, what's bothering Rashi? That became like her, her question trademark of a... What is Rashi saying? What's bothering him? Why is he saying it this way? And then try to figure it out and then try to analyze it together. And though she insisted that it was never about her own commentary, but, um, but at the end of the day, she, there, was, there was chidushim that she put in, uh, in novel ideas uh, that she incorporated into it. But uh, she revolutionized the study of Tanakh because while knocking out all the Bible criticism and scientific ways of studying it. She took a traditionalist approach in essence, but at the same time was uh, was delving into it in a way that in the traditional world was re- rarely done, and uh, that's what made it what, what made her unique and 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 an important contribution that probably had a a a big effect uh, in in the way uh, people learn Tanakh and uh, and the importance that's attached to it. Um, we'll give you one example that I saw that um, 
you know, a, 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 a commentary that's out of the mainstream. We're talking about the midwives in Mitzrayim, in Egypt, who, um, who were normally understood to be Miriam and Yecheved, in other words, Jewish midwives, but there was some obscure commentary that said, no, they're really Egyptian midwives. Now, her goal, whenever she taught Tanakh, was not just for a, a theoretical, for the knowledge. It was always about taking Tanakh and applying it and trying to become a better person, a better Jew, closer to Hashem, do the mitzvahs better. It's all about applying it, moral lessons, very into the ethical teachings and becoming a better person. So he said, so this is a non-mainstream commentary, but what what can we draw from it? What can we get out of it? And of course, here we have to understand the historical context of the generation that she lived and where she grew up. She says, let's assume for a second that this obscure commentary is correct and that they were Egyptian midwives and not Jewish midwives. Look at that. The whole Egyptian nation is participating in this policy of extermination that Pare promulgates, and everyone's participating. Everyone's active and, and going on, and, and, no one's, and, no one, and no one sees that there's something morally wrong. And here, these two midwives get up and they say, we're not following orders. We understand that there's something incorrect here. This is not the right thing to do. And we're going to follow our conscience and not the orders of our superiors. And of course, she's saying that in the shadow of the Holocaust, when the uh, you know she had grown up in Berlin and left before, but the idea that there was that it's possible to follow your conscience and do something that's morally correct based on your own intuitive decision and not follow orders when they were uh, to do something immoral and something that you felt is inappropriate. Um, she uh, she would do these stencils that she sent out Friday to eventually, like I said, thousands of people with the questions and answers were done for no pay. She never got a penny for it. And, uh, and, pl- and she always played down like what, what, uh, what, what she was doing and that not anyone special. Um, when people would want to come to visit her just to meet her, you know, she won the Israel prize in 1956. You know, her brother, Yeshayahu, who will try to get to for a couple of minutes, won it officially. He was voted to win it in the nineties. And because he was so controversial, so he and it, it stirred up a whole controversy. He can't get it. He shouldn't get it. They should give it. They shouldn't give it. So he declined it because it was just beca- causing what we would call too much hack. And but she, so she was a famous personality. She's a professor, but she insisted that I mean, people who wanted to come to visit her just to meet her, she said no, don't come visit me just to meet me. Uh, she didn't give like giving interviews to the media. She said I'm not a museum. I'm a simple person. I'm a teacher. She insisted that her students call her Nechama, and that her title, even though she was doctor and professor, she insisted that her title was Mora. Her wish was that the only word to be written on her gravestone would be the word Mora. That was her tzava, that was her will. And that's what's actually on her matzeva. If you go to see her matzeva, she's buried in Yerushalayim, and the only word on her matzeva is Mora, besides for her name and dates, obviously, is Mora. She's a teacher. And uh, like I said, she had no children, but at her at her levaya, um, in, in her nephew said, "Anyone who would like to join me in saying Kaddish, who feels like uh, that she was a mother to them, is welcome to do so." And all of a sudden, there's hundreds of people saying Kaddish at her levaya. Um, her influence was huge on on uh, many uh, segments of society in the modern Orthodox world, but even on the secular world, and even on more conservative elements within the the uh, 
Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox world. In fact, there was a rabbi who, who liked her svarim word or lecture, who was a student of hers, but he was part of the ultra-Orthodox world, and the yeshiva community, and he you know, wanted to quote things that he heard or read from her, and it was inappropriate that, that he would be quoting a woman. So he kind of changed her name, and uh, this is already after her passing, and he would quote her as Reb Nachman instead of Rebison or Mrs. or Nechama. Either way, so she became Nachman uh, after her passing also. If we move along just for a couple of minutes to her brother, I don't have much time. Um, he follows the same Riga Berlin route, but he studies the sciences, chemistry, medicine, neurophysiology, and a host of others. He's a brilliant guy who had degrees and everything, was knowledgeable in all these sciences. He was already teaching at German universities. And um, and um, when when the Nazis come to power and the Gestapo comes looking for him, so he moves, already married at that point to his wife, who's also a physicist, Greta Winter, and he moves to Switzerland. In 1935, he moves to Israel and starts teaching at Hebrew University. He lived in Rechavia, like uh, most Hebrew University professors, especially the ones that came from Germany, like him. And he lived in this very simple apartment on... Usishkin, and he would walk every day up to the Yeshurun Synagogue. If people are familiar with Yerushalayim, on the corner of King George, uh, right across from the um, from the plaza, um, and right near the great synagogues, the Yeshurun, a very prestigious and old shul. That's where he davened during the week and on Shabbos. And and he was a a fascinating individual. He had he was besides for all the sciences that he was involved in, he studied philosophy and taught on philosophy and the philosophy, political science and philosophy of religions and 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 the way he saw religion about the way he saw the Jewish religion as the the emphasis and he was a religious Jew. The, the emphasis is on mitzvah observance, not a belief system and also not a value system. He felt that values like having a land or nationalism were especially dangerous to Judaism. Um, he was very anti-religious nationalism. Um, but he himself uh, served in the army during the War of Independence. He was even active in politics during the 1950s. He wasn't living in a ivory tower like uh, some people tended to cast him. Um, he was a great philosopher with wild and radical ideas, and he was very provocative in the way he expressed them. And that's what um, you know got people even more. He was also very gruff, um, scary at times. He was, he was also like a, a genius. He knew many languages. He was speaking in on a host of subjects and, and many of the different platforms. He wrote a ton of books and papers and essays. Um, one of his ideas was the separation of church and state, which uh, in, in the United States is, is one of the most uh, uh, concrete you know, bedrock of, of, of America, of an American democracy and the Constitution. In Israel, it's obviously unheard of, and he wanted to apply that idea of separation to church and state because he saw the dangers of making a religious state or or a, a state um, that's identified with a specific religion. He thought that that was uh, unadvisable, and he that was one of his many uh, provocative ideas that he wrote on, he spoke about. But it's interesting that despite his gruff demeanor and his provocative and and radical and extreme opinions about all kinds of things, and the demeanor and the, the image that he had that was through his writing and lectures, but on an individual level, he was actually quite warm and quite personable. And many young students and many admirers would come 
and it would, it would become a thing actually to make a pilgrimage to his home on Rehovu Sishkin to visit him, to speak to him. I remember hearing from uh, Professor David Asaf uh, that when he was in Yerushalayim as a student, he would go to, to classes and shiurim by uh, Ishalo Leibovitch. He said that was one of the highlights of being a young student in Yerushalayim in those days. And, um, and incredibly, this is, I think, astounding almost, is that he insisted on answering every letter. Now, letters obviously weren't texts or emails. They were handwritten letters. So he would read every single letter, piece of correspondence that he received. And many times they were asking him to clarify his positions on certain philosophical ideas and what his sources were and can he elaborate. And he would actually answer every single one, handwritten or maybe typewriter, I don't know. And and he would elaborate and he would patiently answer every letter at length, explaining his positions to every single person who wrote to him. An absolutely amazing ideal that he insisted on and was very particular about. Um, so it gives a, a little bit of another uh, uh, side to him. His philosophy angered everybody. Uh, the religious didn't like his philosophies about religion for his views on God and religion and the Torah. You know, any political beliefs, uh, both on the left and the right, even though he was... You know, uh, definitely on the left somewhere, but he carved his own, you know, position on the left. But but his views on state and values and the Israeli army and on religious Zionism and on the role of the state and on and the role of the Jewish state. I mean, I'm not a expert in any philosophy and definitely not in in Leibovitch's philosophy. But he really managed to make everyone angry. And um, but he was brilliant and wrote a ton. His farm on Chomish, uh, I don't know if it's as popular as his sisters, but used. And, um, and and another interesting is that he and his sister both lived till the age of 91. They both uh, worked it out that way. So that's a, a, just a drop about the Leibovitches. This is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudaGeberer.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Check out our website, YehudiGeber.com. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.